0: Welcome to the OnScript Podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast, and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Welcome back, OnScript listeners. I'm Matt Lynch, coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I'm a co-host with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown-Hughes, and our news co-host, Jules Martinez-Olivieri. Thanks for tuning in. This is a slightly different kind of episode than I normally do, but it was a lot of fun. I interviewed my colleague, Bruce Hymarsh about his book on early evangelicalism. I think at this time when evangelicalism is undergoing a necessary reckoning in many ways, it's also useful to look historically at this unique movement as it took shape in the late 1700s. So that's not to negate the concerns of the present, but also, uh, but it's to give us a different angle. So I think you'll really enjoy this episode. Thanks so much to Ed Hackey for producing the show, to Rebecca Terhune for all her work on media and marketing, And uh, thanks to all of you who give regularly to Onscript. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome Onscript listeners. I'm coming to you from sunny Vancouver, British Columbia, where it's always sunny. And I'm outside at the home of Dr. Bruce Hindmarsh, my colleague at Regent College. Bruce was one of my professors when I was a grad student at Regent, and now he has the the misfortune of being my colleague. Uh, Bruce is the James M. Houston Professor of Spiritual Theology and Professor of History of Christianity at Regent. He's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. He's a past president of the American Society of Church History as well. He's the author of John Newton and the English Evangelical Tradition, published by Erdman's, the Evangelical Conversion Narrative, published by Oxford University Press, and most recently, The Spirit of Early Evangelicalism, True Religion in a Modern World, also Oxford University Press. Bruce, welcome to OnScript. Thank you. Good to be with you, Matt. Thanks for welcoming me to your back garden. Uh, I want to start first by asking you about spiritual theology. So you're a you're the James M. Houston professor of spiritual theology, and, and I think that's a discipline that people are probably a little less familiar with. Um, so first of all, who's James Houston, and what is spiritual theology? Oh, that's great. Well, Jim Houston is, first of all, a very dear friend. He's of the generation of
1: C.S. Lewis, and... Um, fact, was a friend of uh, C.S. Lewis's at Oxford, and um, he is, uh, Jim is a bit of a polymath, he's um, interdisciplinary, he uh, began his academic life as a geographer, really as a kind of intellectual historian, but also gathered um, young people and scholars um, every Sunday in their living room, Uh, to talk about the meaning of Christ and the significance of Christ for all of life, uh, what it means to think uh, intellectually about the meaning of Christ. And in a way, this prepared him for his uh, later vocation, almost like a second career, where he came to Vancouver and started Regent College. So, So he's sort of the founding principal of Regent College, really with the desire that people have a kind of adult intellectual relationship to their faith and that uh, not wanting people to think at a kind of Sunday school level about their um, faith while thinking at a very sophisticated adult level about their profession. But then in around the 1970s, Jim, um, he, uh, he's been quite precocious intellectually in terms of different kinds of movements and what's happening in culture. But he moved from teaching environmental ethics and work on the Christian mind and so on um to um to beginning one of the first programs so well, i think the first program anywhere in any certainly any any evangelical institution in spiritual theology and it was about the time that richard foster wrote his book uh, celebration of discipline and it's the time actually that bernie mcginn at university of chicago divinity school started publishing uh the classics of western spirituality and it seemed like there was an interest in this and jim was widely read in uh in French and aware of the interest in spirituality in France and among certain um, so-called Nouvelle theologians. And so, uh, but he was also just in touch with, um, this was before people were necessarily talking about postmodernism, but he was aware of certain shifts in the culture and concerned that theology not be simply rational. And he wanted uh, people to have a very personal relationship to uh, understanding of theology. And so... um, he sometimes said spiritual theology was intended to be the Trojan horse within the Troy of systematic theology. He kind of wanted to release something that would be a more radically uh, personal approach to um, to thinking about our faith. And so spiritual theology stood for that. But it's not... The danger is with spiritual theology that we think um, these are different aspects of the mystery of Christ. With systematic theology, we want to think think about how our understanding of the mystery of Christ is coherent. You know, in biblical theology, you'll want to think about the canon of scripture and how it bears witness to the mystery of Christ. And so spiritual theology is one more way to understand the mystery of Christ, where the primary sort of organizing idea might be, we might think of it as experience. Mm. This is an experience mystery. And so we can look historically at the way people have experienced a union with Christ and lived that out. We can think of classic writings that have inspired the spiritual life and so on. But as soon as we take it apart, we'd realize how silly it would be to talk about, you know, it's not that I do spiritual theology and you do unspiritual theology. It's not that you do biblical theology and I do unbiblical theology, but these are different ways of approaching the mystery of Christ. But how important to put personal experience and living faith at the very center of that. So that's yeah. that's the. Uh, kind of a long answer, but that's the...
0: No, that's great. And that's a good segue to your book, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, but I want to ask, too, when you first figured out that you wanted to pursue an academic career in history and theology, what, what were some of the you know, turning points in leading you to that decision? Uh, interesting. I think in many ways, for me, um, um,
1: moving into academic study was an aspect of just wanting to understand uh, my own experience of faith more deeply. And as Carolyn and I, my wife and I, did our own graduate studies as students at Regent College. It really was, we, we literally came out to college with, um, on the back of a napkin, we'd written out all our questions. <laughs> and, and we came here with our napkin. Do you still have the napkin? I, I did find, find it when we moved. Oh, that's I yeah. uh, that's then I've lost it again. Oh. So, um, But we just had questions about what it meant to follow Christ in the world. We had been involved in ministry, and we had questions about discipleship and what it means for people to come to Christ and then really live out their faith. Um, and, and what ha- happened is I w- I was asked to, you know, I was invited to go on faculty at a, at a Bible college and I was encouraged by, um, some of my, um, now my colleagues, but some of my professors at Regent who said, if you're going to do that, you should go on to study and you should go on to do a doctorate, which sounded to me like you should be an astronaut. It just wasn't sort of on my radar. Um, But there's a way that it very naturally flowed out of the vocation as a young person, kind of working in ministry, wanting to see people's lives changed by the gospel. This just became an aspect of that question and understanding that, um, as with our own study, that to think deeply about the mystery of Christ, this is an aspect of discipleship. People's lives are changed by the gospel. So I, you know, history, my my study of history, it just felt so eye-opening. It like it was an introduction to culture. It was an introduction to where a lot of things that are influencing us in the present came from and um so i started off into history and i don't think i even you know um it's like the person who didn't realize that they were writing prose you know Uh, i didn't realize i was doing spiritual theology until other people sort of recognized that and it just was a, a a a normal the kinds of things I was investigating as a historian in terms of experience, in terms of people's spiritual lives, that it's not just historical theology and it's not just a kind of devotionalism, but trying to understand this. Um, other people recognized before I did that this sort of, um, that, that I was kind of working in the field. Yeah. And so it became natural when the opportunities um uh, arose to um, to want to do more of that, yeah.
0: and what sparked your interest in early evangelicalism? I mean, you were in an evangelical environment, so at that level it makes sense. But what you know, you've landed in a particular period as well in terms of your scholarly work, at least. I think um the personal
1: part of this would be you know I I, I did grow up sort of being born again and again and again in a sort of evangelical milieu and um and it gave me my faith it meant a great deal to me it also raised questions and um and when we arrived at regent college's students um, it hadn't been too long before that two important books had come out uh, george marsden 1980 fundamentalism in american culture and then um, a little bit later david bebbington's work on evangelicalism in britain and both of them used this paradigm uh, of Christianity and culture, and um, and you think of Richard Niebuhr's book in the 1950s, Christ and Culture, or um, T.S. Eliot wrote a famous essay on kind of Christianity and culture, and just realizing how fruitful and helpful for discipleship this paradigm was to be able to think about my particular tradition, the experience in which I was raised and the tradition that introduced me to Jesus Christ. But to try to understand that in relationship to culture seems so illuminating. And so um, I wasn't necessarily going to head off, um, it's a longer story about sort of my doctoral work and the uh, twists and turns and where I ended up landing. But I've ended up, you know, I ended up working on the early, early evangelical tradition in Britain. And I found it a fruitful place to work. And it's sort of like, um, you know, tugging on a string, the more I pulled, the more there was. And it's it, so sort of three books later, and I'm um, still finding. Um, I think what's become really interesting to me is we understand ourselves today as somehow in some kind of relationship to modernity, to this post or after or late or liquid modernity. But we're understanding modernity as a, as a kind of episode that we have a certain kind of distance from it, or we're trying to understand it. And I realize that the rise of evangelicalism. Uh, took place, and the the transatlantic revivals, the um, the 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 movement of conversion, and so on, took place right on the cusp of modernity. So, if we think ourselves as postmodern, these people were early modern, or right on, right right at the the tail end of Christendom in the beginning of modernity. So, it seemed to me like, like in the same way that Michel Foucault wanted to do a kind of archaeology of the human sciences and go back to the roots of certain things that he was interested in from his own kind of very french post-structuralist point of view he wanted to go look at the enlightenment i went well that's the same place i'm digging and i think there's this is really interesting to see the relationship of this form of christian
0: experience to um to the rise of modernity right and um in, in podcasting, you have to, you have to mark an episode as ex, uh, as explicit if they're swearing, and, and you don't strike me as a real sweary type. but um, in in the current environment, um, evangelicalism yeah, I, almost needs a trigger warning. Um, so, um, and, and I, but I see, as I said to you earlier, um, I, I see your work as a, as a way of helping evangelicals get out of their head a little bit um, and and look at at their history and in a deeper, richer sense. Um, so what happens to your view on kind of contemporary North American evangelicalism when you go back to these sources? Like, you know, you've had a lot of conversations with students who you mentioned evangelicalism and they want to go right to Trump. And, um, what are you kind of wanting to encourage people to do given that sort of, um, environment for the use of this word?
1: Yeah, very good. Um, it is a bit of a challenge. Um, as I was saying to you earlier before we started the podcast, I um, was started this book and the last book and the research I'm doing sort of well before, like a decade ago, before Trump was on the radar, before certain issues that are at the very forefront of sort of cultural anxiety in terms of evangelicalism before that, that even existed. And so the book wasn't written in that sense to be topical. But I think um, I understand how much anxiety there is about, um, ever since this statistic of, you know, that allegedly, you know, 82% of white evangelicals voted for Trump and so on. And, and all of a sudden there's all this political anxiety. But I think part of what I would do is I would just say everybody back up and don't be so immersed Don't let the present shout so loudly that you can't see anything else. And so I think, quite frankly, I think it's parochial in the sense of being mostly American. So it's not sufficiently international and mostly obsessed with the very recent present as opposed to. So it's not sufficiently historical and not sufficiently international. And words mean what people take them to mean. And I understand that vocabulary shifts and there's a way I wish I could use a different word even to talk about so historians and sociologists kinda need the word evangelical. It's it describes something that we would have to use a lot of a lot of words to describe without it. So Mark Knoll sometimes talks about um Protestant Pro- Protestant biblical experientialists, which is—I don't think it's going to catch on anytime soon. Uh, but you know, in many ways, ease Yeah, in many ways, I want people like—I love your phrase—get out of their heads. Like, like actually, the importance of history is it lets us get get distance on this. It lets us see, and, and so you know, sometimes I wondered about you know, returning to the word Methodist, but then people think of a denomination. Or using the word pietist sounds too German and, and it sort of drips with sentiment. Mm-hmm. And there are other words we could use, but it remains that there was a really significant phenomenon in the in the sort of cross Atlantic, sort of on a European, British axis and on a on a British Anglo American axis, there's a really important thing that emerged in about the first third middle third of the 18th century that has endured you know across uh, sort of you know five continents three centuries and it is a form of sort of protestant experiential religion that's of so much more significance than the most recent events in electoral or cultural politics in
0: america right so let's go back to those early days and and actually get out of our heads for the moment Uh, so at the heart of this early evangelicalism that you look at is uh, according to your book uh, the experience of the immediate presence of god so how did you land on that as the defining characteristic of evangelicalism yeah in some ways
1: matt it was a bit of a surprise in my research it's again one of those um, threads you pull on and the more you pull on it the more you find is um whether you take sort of the the major figures um you know like jonathan edwards or um, john wesley um, other uh, george george whitfield and you look at um, their message they they talk you know wesley said expect it now he talked about a present salvation that you could know this now you could know that your sins were forgiven John Nelson was a lay Methodist preacher in Yorkshire, and when he went around telling people that he knew his sins were forgiven, his parents were so embarrassed. They said, "Don't tell anybody you're embarrassing us." and the lack propriety to think that you could know the immediate presence of God. and this was one of Whitfield's messages very early on, and it was kind of electric. and so, in some ways, there's a whole sort of Pentecostal um, pneumatic um, charisma that things that Christians had said from Pseudomacarius to Augustine to John Owen, Puritan John Owen, had talked about the indwelling Holy Spirit, I think it became disruptive and radical with the turn to nature in the 18th century. So as more and more explanations became naturalized and modernized, to appeal to that, and then not only that, but then to make that not just something that you talk about, within the rarefied sort of environment of academic elites who write about this and, as it were, within the vestry and the monastery, but for it to be released into the the democratic populace and, and to preach, you can know your sins are forgiven, you can know the immediate presence of the Holy Spirit. Justification by faith is not just a doctrine, but it's an experience. This became quite disruptive. It became disruptive politically. It became disruptive. Um, and in the new open democratic spaces that emerged in the 18th century with transatlantic long-distance trade, with more immediate forms of communication, with the lifting of press censorship, with the uh, increased speed and efficiency of roads and turnpike canal, turnpike roads and canals, and everybody is more connected So all of a sudden, as this spread, people felt like this experience of the immediate presence of God was extended in space and compressed in time. And that's when it became something more that people identified with and said, it's not just my own experience. It's not even just my own small group, but I can imagine a kind of worldwide community of people who share this experience. And I can See it reflected in periodical literature, in letters, in hymns, and I. It's like when John Wesley was traveling between Oxford and London, and he read, riding with a slack rein, he reads Jonathan Edwards' account of revival in um, uh, Massachusetts, in Connecticut, and uh, Connecticut River Valley, and he says, evidently, one, one experience with what we have here. So he recognized a kind of solidarity as people uh, bore witness to this experience. So, you know, yes. I talked about Bernard McGinn earlier, and um, he'd done such good work in historical sort of, um, spirituality, and he's the great historian of mysticism. And so he has this massive series called the presence of God, uh, um, you know, on the history of mysticism, originally it was going to be one book. And I think I'm up to his eighth book now as it's sort of coming out, but the subtitle is the presence of God. And so the whole mystical tradition as Bernie writes about it is to do with, um, the immediate experience an articulation of the the presence of god so this is not what the evangelicals are doing is not something sort of somehow alien from anything that christians have ever talked about but it's 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 it is newly disruptive because it's popular it 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 goes to excesses you know it uh, it runs off the rails of ecclesiastical propriety i mean just interestingly matt it there's a Uh, I think it's a French book written on the twilight of mysticism. And I'll be interested when Bernard McGinn gets up to this stage to talk about this because by the time you get to around the 18th century, it seems like the mystical tradition kind of dies out Mm. and it's hard to find it anymore. And people could say, the Carmelite scholastic academics and the neo thomists just killed it dead with analysis. The church kind of squashed it as they came down on quietism in France and so on. But it's almost like, um, and I just hint at this sort of thesis in the book, but it's almost like it goes underground and then emerges again as a popular movement among Protestants. And you could actually trace the sources where the... Um, the Protestants are reading some of this continental literature. Some of them are repackaging it so it can be more democratic, simple, and popular. But it kind of reemerges and it's powerful stuff. You can know the immediate presence of God. You can know that you've been justified, saved by grace as a personal experience, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the assuring, the kind of confidence that comes with that. And um, this became like dynamite. So,
0: you um, you talk in the book about uh, the way that John Wesley popularized uh, works for uh, you know general audience. So he he would take a whole series of maybe more academic books and then write condensed versions of kind of like a Reader's Digest version. So so what are some of the processes by which the mystical tradition you could say or the uh, maybe the more Confined environment in which the experience of God was expressed uh, became popularized. Yeah, yeah. I uh,
1: I do a couple of uh, sort of if you like book biographies uh, in the in a chapter where I deal with this, and I do. Um, I mean the primary influences in terms of antecedents and classical sources, are kind of Reformation, Reformed, Puritan, Pietist. But I wanted to make sure that people did recognize this other continuity. And what happened is there's a number of figures who they're almost like um, sponges and conduits, that they soak up stuff, and then they pass it on in a conduit, and you've got people on the continent like Gerhard Terstegen, you've got Pierre Poiret, you you've got uh, other figures. But the 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 ones I was particularly interested in on the one hand are John Wesley, but also a figure like Henry Skugel, a young fellow died early, sort of uh, Scottish Episcopalian, who reads. Um, the continental mystics. He reads some of the, the stuff I teach in class, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross. He reads um, Thomas of Campus. He reads the Cambridge Platonists. He reads this stuff and he simplifies it. He naturalizes it. And what I mean by that is naturalization is the process by which somebody from another country becomes naturalized citizen of another country. So it's naturalized. It all of a sudden, it appears Protestant and then he popularizes it, and and so you have this, and this, and then just this one book, you can trace the influence it has. Uh, Whitfield said he never knew what true religion was until he read this great book by Henry Scougal, and you've got all sorts of, and they, everybody borrows the language, the life of God and the soul of man and that kind of thing. But what I, um, and I, what I, what I did in these book biographies is I wanted to take it right down to ordinary people. And so I was working at the Bodleian Library in Oxford, and they have a collection they call the Goodwin Tracks. And I had ordered up something, and it's always fun to see what else is, comes up with it, because they, they would, these tracks would be bound together. And, and this volume came up in the, in the Goodwin pamphlets, Godwin pamphlets, and, um, and it was filled with marginalia of lay people. And it was not just the particular Methodist track that I was looking at, but also Wesley's abridgment of Schuylkill. And also um, something on the rules of the Methodist society, something on the means of grace and so on. But all the way through, you could read the marginalia, the hymns that are written out... And um, and I found these names like John Lancaster. To make a long story short, I was able to trace who this John Lancaster was and find him and find sort of a family tree and find the connections. And you've got lay people in the Manchester area in the in, in the north of England who are reading Schugel, absorbing it secondhand, Augustine on Christian doctrine, Thomas Aquinas, Teresa Avila, they're reading it. They're annotating it while they sing, you know. And can it be that I should gain? Well, they. So it's it's being directly received and feeding their souls. And then they're passing it on as they teach Sunday school, and you can see this with a number of texts. So there there are direct lines of transmission that mediate this. Let's just call it. Uh, the word mysticism gets confusing. Let's just call it the experiential tradition that you can know the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You can have a, a personally meaningful relationship with Christ uh, that's transforming and empowering. And um, so, um, so I'm very convinced that that tradition by a kind of aquifer um, reaches and is part of what stimulates this whole movement.
0: Now, uh, in addition to the, um, dissemination of classical sources. Uh, you also talk about the importance of diary keeping and, uh, some of our listeners might not be familiar with, uh, the, the diaries that were kept by Puritans and then Methodists. Um, could you just describe these diaries and why they were so significant? Yeah, oh, that's great. I,
1: um, the diaries are really interesting. And I mean, as a historian, it is great fun to read dead people's mail and to, um, you know, things that you, you wonder, did they ever know that somebody else would later read this? And yeah, they're quite
0: pers- personal, aren't it, Oh, they? very
1: personal. And, uh, so right now the, uh, project that, um, that I'm working on right now is a critical edition of the manuscript diaries of George Whitfield. And so I delved into some of these diaries because, um, There's a great historian, I miss him, he's passed away now, Reg Ward, who talked about the Reformers produced treatises and maybe catechisms, the Evangelicals produced archives. Mm -hmm. They were sort of interested in the present work of the Spirit, and they were recording it as it was happening. And so if you think a journal is diurnal, it is what's happening day by day, it's what's happening now. And so recording this in the diaries, which will pass over into testimonies and conversion narratives, and it will break through the early modern reticence about modesty and propriety. Should I speak about myself? But if I have to speak about what God has done for my soul, then I will speak and I will bear witness. And that becomes one of the main genres along with hymn singing. But these diaries, there's just uh, huge collections of personalia. Um, the Moravians, the uh, were great diary keepers, and they had a whole diary culture that produced then the Lebenslauf, the Laufa, the um, um, everybody produced their own kind of course of life, their own account of their spiritual experience. Um, but the early diaries that I worked on in 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 this last book, and that I'm now I'm um, doing a critical edition, uh, are fascinating because you can see the transition from something that is, if you like. Pre-evangelical to the emergence of this experience of the Holy Spirit and this joy in the Holy Spirit, so I make a case study of uh, the early George Whitfield when he was about the age of my youngest son when I was working on this. So I'm thinking about you know my own kids and thinking about Whitfield as an Oxford student, and um, they recorded. And this started with Wesley and Benjamin Ingham, and there's a dozen or more young men at Oxford that kept these diaries. They call it Oxford Methodism because it's before the evangelical revival when they were methodical, recording what they were doing every hour of the day. And they would say, you know, like, six. So there'd be a column for the hour, and then there'd be a bunch of just abbreviations. And it would say, like, R, I I rose, and then um, it would be uh, self-examination, uh, sentence prayers, psalms, private prayer, public prayer. Uh, I was like, Wesley had a NB, which meant necessary business. Um, <laughs> but, you, but you get them recording every hour of the day, what they're doing, what they're reading. And what you see is you can see, it's like, it's like logs or, or kindling being laid on the fire. You can see the influence of the Puritan, nonconformist, biblical tradition. People like um, like uh, Matthew Henry, not the controversial tradition, but the experiential tradition, Richard Baxter, you can see that's like kindling for the fire, being laid to the fire. Then you see them reading August Hermann Franca and Johann Art, you can see the Pietist as one more log on the fire. And then, and then you see the Anglican uh, ascetical tradition, Jeremy Taylor. You can see all this reading and this concern. But then you can also see this stuff gets pretty exhausting after a while, yeah. this kind of fastidiousness. It's almost like OCD. And you can see they reach a breaking point where each one of them come to, each one of them, like Benjamin Ingham, Wesley, mm-hmm. Whitfield, where they need, there's a sense, I need Christ to do for me what I cannot do for myself. And I need something more than just early modern self-management. In fact, um, a project I'm thinking about working on, I've been uh, talking to Carolyn about a new book project that would be uh, Religion in the Quantitative Enlightenment. Mm. And in the same period that they're keeping these diaries, there's a middle third of the 18th century, there's a huge rise in the publication of popular double-entry bookkeeping manuals and it's the same interest in tabular display and quantity and but I think what happened is on the one hand it encouraged discipline you know a rule of life discipline but it also got to the point where it, I think it, it provoked the need for the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit and for the joy of the Holy Spirit that there, there needs to be a fire in the fireplace and uh, it's fine to erect these, um, in a sense, channels for the water to flow in, but we need the water of the Holy Spirit to flow. And, that's, and what's interesting is that Whitfield's diaries, um, what has survived is just some fragments from 1735 and then one notebook from 1736, but they are before and after his conversion. And Matt, you can actually see even in the handwriting the difference. The first one, it is crabbed and... Um, the handwriting itself is tormented. It's kind of squashed into place. It's things are written in the margin. He is troubled. He's unwell. I love in one corner of the manuscript, he writes, I felt the diabetes coming on, you know? <laughs> and um, so of as course, you it makes you, as you do, it makes you wonder what goes on, but it makes you realize that at his conversion, when he felt an uncommon clamminess in his mouth, and after he had been overdoing it with fasting and the physical stuff, a lot was going on for him. But in the first diary, you can just see how all of this is leading to a breaking point. And in the second diary, what you see coming on more and more is this sense of the Holy Spirit. And he begins to use the language of the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the joy of the Holy Spirit. And you'll even see what I call timestamps, when he says, from 11 to 12, joy, Holy Spirit. So he's not just talking generally about experience. He's talking about from that hour, from 11 to 12, um, I was overcome with a sense of the Holy Spirit. And so I think, I think that becomes, we talked about the logs being laid on the fire. I think that becomes like the spark that then, um, and, and so Whitfield is like a case study, but you could show this in figure after figure after figure, and then it becomes generalized as Wesley says, evident one work with what we have here when he reads Jonathan Edwards. And people begin to realize this as something that is uh, more expansive and is spreading and in the open, more democratic spaces where movements can coalesce, come together, connect, disconnect. It allows space for what is really almost a new ecclesiology or sociology. It's more movemental. It's more connectional it's not simply based on the hierarchical parish or the um or the kind of structured um ecclesiology but it's something that is more
0: movemental so um there are a lot of threads i'd love to pick up on there um it, it, were people encouraged to keep these kinds of diaries at a popular level or was it more for the leaders of the movement so to speak it um
1: there was a whole um, culture of personalia. So the Moravians, um, you know, this kind of renewed Moravian movement that came 1727 out of sort of um, Upper Lusatia and um, out of Zinzendorf, and they ended up in England and helping to stimulate revival. So you've got different groups nonconformist, Anglican, Moravian. The whole Moravian culture absolutely encouraged. Uh, this and produce these archives and there's all these diaries you can look at and letters and so on. Um, but so also there was a diary culture where, you know, Charles Wesley will meet with a, uh, one of the women's bands, one of the women's small groups, and he'll read from his diary. Hmm. And then the language of his diary gets picked up in the letters, recounting personal experience that some of these women then write to him in return. So there is a whole culture of diary keeping, letter writing, a whole manuscript culture as Reg Ward says, they produced archives because they were concerned about the present experience of the spirit. they would have letter days when they read out letters uh, from abroad and from around the world where you're um, just like scribal publication. You've got these, you're, you're reading these diaries, you're reading these letters and, and then you'll get, you know, Janet Jackson is a weaver near Glasgow, who because she's read, somebody has read to her the account of what happened in Northampton, Massachusetts with Jonathan Edwards, Uh, this stimulates her experience, you know, and so it all becomes interconnected.
0: Yeah. So these things catch on like fire. And it it strikes me from your, what you're describing here and what I read in your book, that a lot of the um, aspects of modern religious experience have their roots in this time period that we might just think are normal. Like um, the idea of, um, claiming a personal experience of God and and being confident in that, or the idea of uh, giving your testimony or sharing your conversion experience. So, so what are some of the um, aspects uh, that have have made it kind of outside the evangelical world, so to speak, that were really birthed in this period? Yeah. That character to just characterize, characterize Christian life in general, maybe for yeah. the modern world.
1: I think, I think that is one aspect is sort of narratable Christian experience and being able to narrate what God has done for my soul. And, uh, that becomes much bigger, um, than evangelicalism. Um, so early on in the 17th century, um, this was just not a done thing. Like you didn't. like that was immodest you had to get over the modesty thing so often even when people did publish there would be a modesty topos they would say at the beginning i only write this at the importunity of my friends like i don't i wouldn't want to say this but people are begging me to say this and so initially in connection with a sense that you know in the mid-17th century you know in the Cromwellian period, in the sense that we are at the edge of the promises, that it's the end times, and your young men and your young women will prophesy, and so on. There are a few churches that begin asking people to narrate their experiences as a part of joining the church. So normally, within even these Calvinistic or Baptist churches and so on, you might narrate a sense, you might give a sense of your orthodoxy and people would testify to your moral probity that you're a good person. But the idea that you would narrate your experience and other people would say, we think manifestly, we see in you the Spirit and that you are genuinely a Christian, come join the church. That was new. But what happens is the evangelicals pick up on that idea and then the pietist idea that there can be an ecclesial Ecclesiola in Ecclesia. There can be a small group within the church, if you like uh, an alpha course or a Bible study, where people share this experience. And then the idea among the Moravians that there is something they call the Brudergemeine, which is an international brotherhood of all those who've experienced this. So I think that idea that um, even you could say... I don't know that you would have had something like the ecumenical movement that arises out of the missionary movement without this. The the sense that we can look across denominational lines and recognize in each other, though we might not agree on every detail, we recognize in each other a common kind of spiritual identity. I think one of the other areas where this movement has uh, what is early evangelical, the Protestant biblical experientialists in this period, where it kind of spreads beyond something that we might think too narrowly as evangelical, is the whole contribution of the hymn tradition. Mm. And so it's interesting when you look not just at content but form of a movement. What does this movement produce? Well, the Reformation did produce a lot of catechisms, a lot of treatises and so on. The evangelicals want to produce testimonies, conversion narratives, they of course sermons, but they also want to produce hymns that there's something lyrical. Like the genre we it is effusive, ebullient, we want to sing. And hymns are the most ecumenical genre. And you know, in a high church Anglican service today, you'll have Charles Wesley side by side with Reginald Heber and John Henry Newman and maybe even Fanny Crosby. You know, I went to a really super high church uh, service that commemorated John Henry Newman at Littlemore in Oxford where, you know, a new setting for the Mass had been written by a German composer and where there was so much smoke and incense you could hardly see the front of the church and the last thing we sang was Shine Jesus Shine by Graham Kendrick, you know, and you kind of go
0: you know, uh, how did this happen?
1: <laughs> how did this happen? The person next to me, Super High Church, she says, yeah, I call this Buff Up, Jesus. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't her favorite song. Uh, but it's, it is really interesting to see alongside like, Lead Kindly Light, you have these Wesleyan hymns. And, um, and I think it is because Wesley said the hymn book is a little body of practical and experimental divinity, which is a way of saying it's spiritual theology. And it testifies to Christian experience. And yet it's not just sentimental, like, I love the way I feel and I love you kind of songs. It is doctrinal, didactic, Trinitarian, salvation historical. um, But the feeling is there and the experience is joined to the teaching in a way that has, I think it's the greatest contribution of the early evangelical movement to the global historic church, has been its body of hymnody. I remember Jim Houston was trying to egg me on one time. He says, evangelicalism has never produced a classic body of literature on prayer. And he just likes to provoke, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, Jim, what about the entire body of hymnody? That is that is a lex orandi, lex credendi. It is as we pray, so we believe. And it's an embodied in via kind of theology.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And one that's very um, bold in its claims about the experience of God um, and also um, broad base in terms of what it's engaging. So one of your points in the book is that um, evangelicals were not shy about expressing, giving kind of a doxological response to the, the works of God in, in creation and through science. Um, so, so what are some of the ways that these early evangelicals were engaging the modern world Um, with regard to scientific discovery. Great,
1: great. Thank you. And that's like, in a sense, we've been talking a lot about um, modernization and the other sort of two-thirds of the book is dealing with naturalization and the way in which with the rise of modernity you have the uh, scientific revolution and the enlightenment. And, um, And it occurred to me when I was working on this that the generation in which we see the rise of Anglo-American evangelicalism was the same generation that people who do the history of science would say in which Newtonian science was naturalized as a, and received into the culture. So in other words, like it's a, maybe a generation before that Isaac Newton is doing his work and people are debating it, but when it is actually received into the culture is at the same time that you see the rise of evangelicalism. So I kind of want to understand the relationship here. And of course, there's the whole conflict model of Christianity and science and somehow Christianity being opposed or inherently in conflict with science. And so I wanted to wrestle with that. And it it was really fascinating. I have a couple chapters where I look at the ways in which um, evangelicals responded to to this shift. And for the most part, what they did... They embraced it, they made practical use of it, like in medicine, and and um, they traveled with their electrical machines to provide electrical therapy and yeah. so on, and they, um, you know, they, they used it, they applied it, they disseminated it. John Wesley wrote what you might think of as um, science for dummies, mm-hmm. like it was like the it was probably the most important popularization of science in the 18th century, a compendium of natural uh, philosophy. And it, and it grew and grew into multiple editions. He read this, he disseminated it. And it's interesting, at the end of his preface, in all of the editions, he said, what should be the use of this? It should cause us one uh, amazement and lead us to praise, you know, to offer uh, wonder, love and praise. It's the same phrase that Charles Westy used at the end of his hymn, Love Divine, Divinal, Love's Excelling, in response to Christology, mm-hmm. that we rise to wonder, love, and praise. So the response to the natural world and to the Book of Nature was to rise and offer the praise of a mute creation. So in the midst of this turn to nature, I think they, which has been described as disenchantment, mm-hmm. I think they re-enchanted. It was possible to see God present in nature not just as a deduction from nature, not just sort of um, ergo or um, ratziotzination that we therefore conclude as the so-called physical theologians did, that we can take Isaac Newton and then infer that maybe perhaps there is a God, Mm -hmm. but it was actually to see God in all of this, And to see him present, as uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote as a young man, to see him in the clouds, to see him in the moon, to see him in the sun.
0: In the flying spiders. In the flying
1: spiders, yeah. His uh, science notebooks are really fun to read. He, um, He was so curious about the natural world, about why mountains lean to the west, why bubbles rise in the air, why the sea is salty, Why just because we have feeling in our fingers, the soul is not in the fingers? Why there are so many frigomorphic particles in winter? I've always wondered that. Yeah, yeah, I I thought maybe. Yeah. And uh, and yet at the same time, this is the young man who is walking. And, you know, inglit, lit crit people have picked up on the way he writes about nature as being sort of, you know, anticipating the early transcendentalists. Like he has such a mystical sense of the presence of God as nature, but it's all happening at the same time. He is uncrating, you know, at Yale, the uh, um, Newton's Principia and his optics. He's reading all this. He even talked about running an experiment on compacting gunpowder, you know, within a square inch and what the celerity would be with which it would rebound. Well, and it it's maybe just, as well <laughs> he didn't, maybe just as well he didn't do that, yeah. you know. but But so... Th- these leading evangelicals were reading science like way more than most pastors would today. Like yeah. they, they read it, they knew it, they rejoiced in it. Uh, astronomy was huge. So they they were fascinated with astronomy, but in no way did they then disengage and say, there is a natural world that is sufficient to explain things and there is a second world that is completely divorced, compartmentalized and out there somewhere. And so they pushed back against that.
0: Yeah, and it struck me that this was happening at all levels of society. So you talk about Phyllis Wheatley, yeah. uh, who is a, a slave woman who yeah. uh, gains her freedom, but she writes this poem in which she uh, waxes eloquent about the sun, but then talks about its precise distance from the earth, or at least what they thought yeah. was its distance from the earth, 80 million miles or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So... Um, you know, that that this was, a, it was a seamless tapestry of, of engaging the, the book of nature. And, yeah, and Phyllis Wheatley is
1: amazing how she acquired her knowledge of classical literature and astronomy. But it does say that far from metropolitan center of power and prestige and so on and influence, that as a African-American slave, liberated slave, that she... That she knew the correct astronomical unit, the distance from Earth to the Sun, that had been calculated based on an earlier experiment. Like it was the first international science project to calculate the transit of Venus and to get a more accurate calculation of the Earth-Sun distance, and she knew this stuff. Even and she got it correct when Augustus Toplady, who wrote, um, you know, a Calvinist uh, Anglican figure who wrote *Rock of Ages*, cleft, you know, for me. Um, he wrote a whole thing on natural history and he got it wrong. But she got it right, you know? Uh, yeah. Just amazing. He, he, but what's a decimal point between friends? You yeah, know? yeah, yeah,
0: precise. And and you, you even had a beautiful picture in the book, uh, uh pastel painting or drawing by John Russell of the moon, where he would, he would spend six hours a day for like two decades studying the moon with his telescope, staying up to two, three in the morning, as his side job, he had a day job as well. I mean, it's an extraordinary world.
1: Yeah. I uh, John Russell was a lot of fun to... That was another diary. Um, he was the foremost pastelist of his generation working in pastels. He wrote the standard book on drawing with crayons, <laughs> which would be pastels. And he made his living sort of uh, making, you know, painting portraits of the great and uh, mighty um, um but his, as you say, his side gig, when well, he was fascinated, he just called the moon this beautiful object. And he would get home and take his Doland reflector telescope in his backyard. Evidently in London, there was not the same light pollution as today. And he would look up and study the moon for six hours. And he would use a micrometer to calculate exact, precise, mathematical distances, features. And he made these studies of the moon over the course of a couple decades and produced... And what's fascinating to me is we divide today the arts and the sciences, but there's still a union of art, science, and devotion for Russell that what he produced was um, the most accurate drawings of the moon that I've ever they been looked done. They look like a photograph. Well, I, you walk in. I, I walked into the Museum of the History of Science in Oxford, right beside the Sheldonian Theatre. You walk in and then turn right down the grand staircase and you look at the wall, five foot by five foot. What is that photograph from Nassau doing on the wall? Yeah and you go up to it and it's one of Russell's um, amazing uh, pictures. So I went into the museum and pulled out his notebooks and you can just go through and see all his studies. And sometimes what you see is like these mathematical, geometric uh, calculations of, um, you know, Mar Ibrium on the moon, like he's really detailed. But then you also see see these elements of art. And there's an interesting letter where he talked about an artist understands the relationship between light and shadow. And there are certain things you can see in the sun when it's oblique as opposed to when when the sun is sort of head on the moon, when the moon is in an oblique relationship to the sun. And it helps you determine what are sort of oceans and lands, as they call it, and seas and lands on the moon. And so it actually his artistic insight was not just a matter of seeing the moon as beautiful, but it actually informed more accurate calculations. Right.
0: Because they thought there were uh, large seas on the moon and he showed, well, if you look at all the different ways the light interacts with these large craters, they're actually empty.
1: Yeah. And you may have seen in the book, because I was fascinated with this, but there's this figure called the maiden in the moon, which an earlier Cassini, an earlier astronomer, had kind of noticed, and I think it was people in the Cassini's workshop that kind of had, had kind of created this, um, little sort of had realized that this, this looks like a woman. You can see her flowing hair and so on. And, um, and Russell does the most exquisite, uh, drawing of this that is accurate if you like scientifically, but the figure of the woman in the moon merges into an angel. Mm. And for me, this is a little cameo of the union of art, science, and devotion all held together, right? And he produced these uh, selenographia, these working models that, with a, a kind of handle that would show all the vibrations of the moon, these kind of three-dimensional model. He produced planispheres. Like the stuff he did as a complete amateur, um, amateur in the sense of amoir, doing this for love, um, is um, is astonishing, and it certainly puts the lie to dividing somehow um, science and religion or dividing or seeing them as just inherently and always in conflict. I mean, anybody who's done just even a little bit of work recognizes this is not the case. Um, And so there's a whole number of figures at a popular level, at a high sort of more intellectual level, they're embracing the science, they're making use of the science they're re-enchanting the universe that had seemingly been drained because the previous metaf- like there is a significant metaphysical shift if you think if the metaphysical shift is to say the natural is all that there is and that we no longer need god to take make, take an account of anything and if isaac newton only needed god periodically to intervene to correct the orders of the planets you know if um, the only relationship between thought and extension, spirit and matter, soul and body for Descartes was you know maybe the pineal gland is where they kind of connect, or there's something about animal spirits that arise from the blood you know like all of a sudden you have you've got a world in which instead of as our so many of our theologian friends who love the early church and the medieval period would talk about a participated cosmos. And that, and people worry sometimes, you know, is that too Gnostic or is that too Platonist? But it was a sacramental vision of the world in which God is present in the world. And all of a sudden, you have an account of the world in which the God hypothesis is unnecessary. And it, it's simply, everything you look at is surfaces. It's just surfaces and there is no inherent spirit that's a part of the world. There is no, what Aristotle called, final causes to anything it just stuff is and it obeys laws in an abstract empty void space and so these specific ideas if we look at james harvey or at jonathan edwards they engaged the intellectual questions about what that meant like how do we understand gravity the uh, action at a distance occult influences that you can't see there's no contact um, influence but it's action at a distance how do we understand that how do we understand void space, the idea that space is empty? How do we understand the Inf- vast... Infinity, <laughs> magnitude, affinity yeah. Affinity is yeah, huge, yeah. right? The magnitudes of the universe. And does it make us insignificant as Fontenelle worried in France? And they said, no, it just, it just further gives us a sense of awe about the condescension of our God that he would come to save us. And uh, so they responded at the level of sentiment, devotion, intellectually engaging, but where they couldn't go is when um, people said we need an Isaac Newton of the moral sciences and we can explain human nature um, and expect the same revolutions in morality and uh, moral thought and um, moral philosophy that we saw in natural philosophy. That's where they made a kind of break. And they said, no, um, the human condition is actually... um, it is fundamentally broken and we, we we need a different kind of analysis that will take into account that we don't just read ethics off of human nature and that was in a sense the moral philosophy project in the 18th century in sort of a moral sense philosophy and so on was to try to see if we could so there's a famous line in um is it grotius i'm trying to remember now in which he said trying to analyze political and moral behavior and saying this would be true even if God didn't exist which of course he says it would be impious to say but the idea is can we actually give a whole account of the human world without the God hypothesis and that was much more troubling to the evangelicals and they so where they embrace science they largely distanced themselves from those ideas and said we need we need god to reveal god we need god to give us an account of human nature and we need god to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves because human nature is there's a fundamental cupidity and bentness of human desires for which we need help and didn't mean they they had no account of natural morality somebody like jonathan edwards and others they and john wesley had an account of natural morality but they just said it's just not enough
0: right Um, We're running short on time, but I just want to get your response to a quote in your book. There's a a couple chapters on law as well. We haven't even really touched on that. So you say that in a way, evangelical spirituality was as much about law as it was about anything else. How so? What do you you mean by that? One of the central arguments um,
1: internal to evangelicalism, and if you look at what people are willing to fight about, it, it kind of tells you what they care about. So uh, one of our colleagues, Don Lewis, talks about um, iconoclasm in the 17th century. He says, iconoclasts care. Mm. They care. And that they care about that. Image of God, idolatry. Well, evangelicals worried about how I relate to God's law. And so God's law diagnoses my sinful condition and uh, God's law, as Calvin says, the third use of the law is a guide and a spur. It shows me what holiness and the image of God looks like. And But they had all sorts of debates about this. What I tried to do in the book is show this is not just a scholastic debate about, as it were, 17th century scholastic Calvinism and what you believe about predestination, antinomianism, whether you can save yourself. And uh, because if you... Emphasize God's grace too much, you would get accused of being antinomian. Mm-hmm. You have no place for the law in mm-hmm. your life. If you emphasize too much your own agency, you were accused of legalism. So those are both law terms, right? Mm-hmm. In a society that is actually absolutely preoccupied with law, and, and they interact with that legal culture. But what I try to do in the book is to suggest that we don't just see this as a sort of, you know, backwater in history where people are carrying on debates about Calvinism. But what it puts right at the very center of uh, culture is the question about agency, because every, every book on modernity talks about agency autonomy and the movement in law and moral philosophy was from natural law, which is objective to let's say Kant in which we become the universal moral legislator, literally autonomous, which is again, autonomy the word law is in that word, um, autonomos. Yeah. And the idea of autonomy and human agency that is self-sufficient, that debate, so the debate about what is the relationship between divine agency, what God does, and what I do, if you place that at the center of modernity, what you realize is they're asking a really important question. How do, It comes back to how do we understand the presence of God in the modern world? How do we understand the efficacious gracious presence of God in the modern world, that he saves people, that he interacts with us and our own will, that we are not just in control. Uh, Modernity is a lot about control. I've been just writing for myself about the pandemic, and uh, I was just writing this morning a paragraph about how, um, in addition to a fear of mortality, I think what really shook people last March was it was like modernity was shaken to its foundations because our sense of control over nature, one definition of modernity is faith in systems. And will the financial system collapse? Will supply chains collapse? Will the welfare system be collapse? Will it be able to support people in unemployment? Will the science collapse? Will it be able to save us? Will the medical system collapse? And there was anxiety about, I think tremendous anxiety that maybe modern life is more fragile than we realized. And so, If you add into that sort of faith in modernity, that sense of control that we feel like we have over our lives, that we realize is actually more fragile than we think. And then you realize that the early evangelicals were asking, how do we understand not just God's presence, but God's agency in this world, that we not only do we act, but God acts. That actually becomes a hugely important question. And it could be framed classically in the relationship of the mystical and the ascetical and um, the relationship between the aesthetic and the ethical, and the relationship, as you would say, in New Testament, between the indicative and the imperative, uh, between what is and what ought to be, that these actually become not just arcane debates, but they become questions that are fundamental to the human condition in all ages and fundamental to the question of modernity.
0: And Bruce, what is it that you hope evangelicals will recover and retrieve at this particular moment in 30 seconds right yeah Yeah. (laughs)
1: I think uh, I think we need uh, to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as uh, the gift of the Father to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves and I think to recover that sense of God's presence that God can be known in the modern world God can be experienced and God saves and to have faith in that, that, that to renew our sense of confidence in the gospel and that we have a saving God who wants to indwell his dwelling to be with women and men and uh, to be our God and us to be his people and that God is not inhibited from doing that despite um, the fact that the nation's rage and um, ideology rages that we can recover our confidence in the gospel and a God who saves
0: well, Bruce, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Thanks, Map. You've been listening to OnScript, Delectable Conversations on Scripture and Theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.